Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll hear some of the remarks from the Geisinger National Symposium featuring keynote speaker Hillary Clinton. Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro discusses his office's ongoing strategy for battling the state's opioid epidemic, and we'll hear from the author of a new book about the challenges of the juvenile justice system and some ideas to improve the situation. Geisinger and Danville hosted a national symposium recently entitled From Crisis to Cure, Revitalizing America's Healthcare System, and some well-recognized medical figures and political leaders were on hand for the event to offer their perspectives on an often-discussed topic. Panelists discussed transparency in the patient experience, the role of technology in medicine, and the positive impact of the private sector in healthcare. One year to the day of conceding the presidential election to Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton appeared at the symposium to offer her ideas in the realm of improving health care delivery. Here is part of her conversation with Dr. David T. Feinberg, the president and CEO of Geisinger. Yeah. 
So my real entryway was how to do the best for kids and how to, as I've said often, uh, you know, do everything they can to give every child a chance to live up to his or her goddamn potential. So I'd stay with kids for a second because you've devoted your life to making kids better at the children's health insurance. It's really been you pushing. And I think many of us are nervous about kind of what happens next. But what is well, we have every reason to be nervous, David, and have a great health system like I think are known firsthand how important the children's health insurance program has been. As Virginia said in her introduction, I was privileged to be part of a bipartisan effort, and I express that because uh, it wasn't so long ago uh, working with Ted Kennedy and come up with a way to plug the holes between employer-based health care, which covers kids in most instances, and Medicaid, which covers kids below a certain uh, income level, and then everybody in the middle. And, you know, I, I, when I was working on health care reform back in 93, I had the most serious experience in a bunch of them, but one in particular I was at the Children's Hospital in Cleveland, and I was meeting with parents whose children were uninsurable, mostly because of congenital conditions, chronic conditions. And I remember sitting in a room, and I thought, okay, I'm going to bring people together, hear their stories, and then try to be their voice. And there was a father there with two daughters who had cystic fibrosis, and it was just so overwhelming an experience. I was a mom myself by then, and his dad said, I've got two daughters, I'm a successful businessman, I have my own business, I can't, I can't find insurance anywhere. And I said, well, what do they tell you when you go and, and say, I can afford insurance, so give me, please, a chance to buy it. He said, well, the last time I talked with uh, an insurance company representative, he listened to my story, and then he looked at me and he said, you don't understand, we don't insure burning buildings. And this man looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, he called my daughter's burning buildings. So the problem was acute, and there was a very big population of kids that were not getting covered or who would lose coverage or would get a limit on their coverage. And so that's why we worked to get the children's health insurance program going. 
short version. Um, I don't think it surprised anybody above a certain age that, you know, my husband grew up in the town that ate just great southern cooking. Um, you know, he would, he would periodically cut back, but he didn't change his diet. When uh, he had uh, a heart flare-up in 2004, he didn't actually have a heart attack, uh, but he did have blockage and he had, uh, you know, a lot of chest pains and breathing difficulties and eventually within days was uh, scheduled for a bypass, which he had. When he came out of the hospital that first time, he was really given uh, a very Yeah. 
Those are remarks of former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, who appeared at a recent seminar hosted by Geisinger and Danville entitled From Crisis to Cure, Revitalizing America's Healthcare System. She was joined in the discussion by Dr. David T. Feinberg, president and CEO of Geisinger. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. The ongoing battle to tamp down Pennsylvania's opioid crisis has been a vigorous one for the Office of Attorney General. The office arrests an average of three dealers every day, has seized more than 33 tons of drugs, and arrested some professionals for misconduct. Attorney General Josh Shapiro spoke to us this week about this ongoing issue and filled us in on the details of some of the work he's been doing with the veterans community. I was in a number of counties in in Naples, Wyoming, and Susquehanna, Bradford, and Sullivan. I wanted to spend some time with vets. I mean, we work for vets every single day, not just on Veterans Day, but they have particular needs um, that are unique to their community. Oftentimes, don't have help when it comes to substance abuse. Veterans are twice as likely to die from an accidental opioid overdose than non-veterans. And this is a stunning statistic. The number of vets with opioid use disorder is actually increased by 55% since 2010. So we spend a lot of time obviously working on the heroin and opioid crisis, but specifically working on the issues that veterans are facing, connecting them with services that they need, providing them the assistance they need. There's other areas as well, whether it's scams uh, targeting veterans, which is on the, uh, an, a, you know, an uptick there that we're focused on as well. But I was really, you know, specifically looking at the, uh, the opioid issue in my discussions with them uh, last week. Do you have any uh, information, Josh, as to why there might be this kind of a spike among the veteran community? Well, first off, the VA um, historically over-prescribed opioids. Now, They've since begun to change their practices, but you have a number of people who got addicted. Number two, you've got a lot of veterans who are in pain, right? They need um, medication. They need support to deal with that pain. Um, And for a long time, alternatives were not available. And then third, it's hard to quantify this, but I I think anyone listening would would recognize it. You know, veterans are a prideful group, and they, they don't want to ask for help, and they don't want to acknowledge that they have a challenge. And that's not a criticism or insult. It's because, uh, uh, you know, of their training and and their, you know, resilience and their strength of character. And so part of what I also want to accomplish is by letting them know that, look, it's okay to ask for help and we're here and we're going to get you the help that you need, Um, you know, and and we want to work with you. We want to make sure that you have alternative alternatives to opioids. We want to make sure, you know, that there's support groups available. We want to make sure that, you know, there's doctors available who are going to understand your pain a little bit better and and deal with it more responsibly. In a story uh, written outside of our area today in the Harrisburg Patriot, they kick off a series of looking at the addicted places of Pennsylvania by visiting Luzerne County. And I think that we both know that Luzerne County proper has really been ravaged by this uh, particular addiction issue and i know you do spend a lot of time here josh how how, how do you think that uh, the strategic plan amongst the uh, the powers that be here is is coming together to combat this and we all understand this might get worse before it gets better yeah i do spend a lot of time in luzerne county and, and throughout northeastern pa and i mean look we had 140 overdose deaths uh, that we're aware of in luzerne county last year 2016 
That was a 47% increase from the year before, from 2015. Um, when you look across Pennsylvania, um, the rural parts of Luzerne County, rural parts of Pennsylvania, proportionally speaking, are the hardest hit. And so you need unique uh, and, and you know, laser beam focused on these communities in order to uh, best address it. I think what is clear and what I talk about every day and what we practice in the AG's office is you need a multidisciplinary approach. So we go out and we arrest the drug dealers and we've made a significant number of arrests in Luzerne County. You also need to arrest doctors and others who are diverting legal prescriptions for illegal use. Um, but then you also have to make sure that you look at the supply chain here. And I think for so many people, the supply chain starts with a pharmaceutical drug, an Oxy or a Percocet. And so we are leading a massive multi-state investigation into the pharmaceutical industry that have been dispensing these opioids throughout rural Pennsylvania and all across the country. And then you also need to focus on getting treatment available for people. And on the, the last point, that's where I coordinate closely with county officials, with state officials and others to make sure that, you know, we're arresting the people that need to be arrested, like the dealers and those who are violent, but we're helping get people into treatment who need it most. Last week, uh, you also did something out in Allegheny County that uh, your office says is uh, a first. You and uh, your uh, staff actually seized an enormous amount of carfentanil, and I know carfentanil in, in minuscule quantities can be so deadly, but uh, yeah. $750,000 is uh, what, what happened here last week. Can you talk a little bit about that for people who might not be familiar with what that is? Yeah, it was the first known seizure of carfentanil um, here in Pennsylvania, and it was in Allegheny County, where Pittsburgh is. Uh, it involved a number of municipalities within that county, uh, including the city of Pittsburgh and places like Braddock, North Braddock, and others. Um, Carfentanil is, you know, thousands of times more potent than heroin. Um, it is quite literally an elephant tranquilizer. That's what it's used for when used properly. Uh, and that is now making its way into the stream of illegal commerce. and People are buying it. Uh, and it is unbelievably potent and dangerous. And we're going to do everything we can to get it off the streets in western Pennsylvania, northeastern Pennsylvania, and all across our commonwealth. It's it, it doesn't take much to kill somebody with this car fentanyl. Do you have just, um it, just with, a minuscule yeah. amount? In, in fact, amount. even your first responders when they when they come in contact with it, they have to be careful that they're not hurt or killed, right? Right. I mean, we actually we had a, a bust recently of just a massive bust with fentanyl and heroin in Philadelphia, and we had one of our agents came in contact with this poison and actually had to be uh, given, administered Narcan or Naloxone uh, because uh, he came in contact with it, along with some Philadelphia police officers uh, as well. This is incredibly dangerous for our first responders and for law enforcement. And so, obviously, we want to make sure that they've taken care of themselves. They all have Narcan, Naloxone on them, uh, and we stress every day the proper way to handle this kind of poison and the proper way to conduct themselves out of the field. It's incredibly dangerous. Where does it come from, though? A lot of people say that uh, it's because of the quantities. It, it literally can be shipped from anywhere. Is it coming from outside the country? Is it being manufactured in laboratories inside the United States? Do you have a handle on that? A lot of it's coming from outside the United States, places like China and Mexico. Um, some of it comes across the border, and we certainly need border security 
in order to shut that down. A lot of it is coming across the uh, dark web, uh, the you know the uh, internet internet based sales, and so we work closely with our federal and state partners to try and combat all of that. Okay. And are you having any success in finding um, the sources? And I'm sure they could be coming from everywhere and it's quite difficult. We, we are. I mean, look, we've, uh, you know, significantly increased the number of dealers we've arrested. Uh, we've arrested over a thousand drug dealers since I took office in January. That averages out to over three and a half drug dealers a day every single day I've been in office. Um, and while, you know, we're, we're working hard to get ahead of it, there's still a lot out there and we're going to remain vigilant and do everything we can. It's why I'm the first one to say, even though it's my job to go out and arrest people, I'm the first one to say that that alone is not going to fully address this crisis, that you need all of those other things we discussed before in order to combat it fully. All right. And also your office was involved recently in Lackawanna County with the arrest of a doctor. And uh, a lot of people were taken aback by this. I must say that uh, this was actually the doctor of one of my family members and uh, and some friends of mine as well. And by all accounts, uh, was was a good and conscientious doctor. Do you know the circumstances around what what happened here that led your uh, staff to press these charges against this individual? Well, look, this doctor is one example um, of what I talked about before, a focus of my administration on making diversion arrests. Diversion is where you take a legal prescription drug like an Oxycontin or a Percocet and you divert it for illegal use. Uh, a doctor is selling it um, illegally or giving it away for some particular favor. Uh, I'm not going to get into the specifics of this case, but I can tell you that we're seeing this across the Commonwealth, and uh, we have focused on it, and we've got a 50% increase in the number of diversion arrests in the first 10 months of 2017 versus the first 10 months of 2016, nearly 50% increase. And so this is something we take very, very seriously. Now, this is different from doctors, say, over-prescribing or prescribing at a rate that we would, you know, maybe not recommend. And on that, we're working with the medical societies and other training organizations to get doctors to change their practice. That's not what went on here. What went on here was criminal behavior where these drugs were diverted. Okay. Uh, you, you've laid out, Josh, a lot of the stuff that's going on. It seems a very, like a very intense pursuit um, and like I mentioned before, I don't think anybody is thinking this will stop anytime soon. But do you believe that the combination of arrests, the treatment, the looking at professionals, do you believe eventually that we're going to turn the corner in the state? Because there, I told the audience before you came on, there's a, a woman who, it says it in her obituary, she was 40, she died in Luzerne County. Her daughter was 16 and died two weeks ago. And when yeah. I hear stuff like that, it's so heartbreaking. When, when do you believe that we'll see a, a little bit of daylight on this? You know, these stories are just, they're so tragic and the numbers are so overwhelming. Um, it's why I've made this, my top priority combating the heroin and opioid epidemic. And I try not to get down uh, by hearing these stories. In fact, when moms and dads, you know, and brothers, sisters cry in my arms, I mean, quite literally cry in my arms, telling me about the loved one who was lost from and the dip battle with addiction. 
um, it actually fuels my efforts. It fuels my team's efforts. It, we work even harder. I guess what I would say to you right now, Sue, is um, I don't anticipate the numbers changing dramatically in the next year or two in terms of coming down. Uh, but what I do see out there, which gives confidence that as the years go on, we're going we're gonna to defeat this, is a level of awareness, coordination, cooperation, law enforcement working together. Uh, I make it very clear that we've got to coordinate and collaborate with our local, state, and federal partners in order to make these cases. And I think that level of coordination combined with greater emphasis on treatment uh, is going to help us kick this. I would say that, you know, those in Washington, those in Harrisburg, um, they've got to begin to invest some real money into treatment. You know, they can talk all they want about this, but, you know, we're on the front lines working this every day. Uh, and they're not making our jobs any easier by, you know, not making available funding or by threatening to cut off funding as they're doing in Washington. And it's time that they, you know, step up and provide some real support for treatment. I think when they do that, we're going to be in a stronger position to be able to combat it. Okay. And finally, we know that uh, medical marijuana is is starting to uh, kick in in these phases in the state of Pennsylvania where doctors can uh, prescribe for those who qualify. Is there any reason to look at marijuana as a potential, um, I don't, alternative to opioid painkillers? Well, there are a number of alternatives that are out there for opioid painkillers right now, and I've been challenging insurance companies to change their practices so that those alternatives are available. There is some medical evidence to suggest that medical marijuana, medicinal cannabis is going to be one of those alternatives. There's also some medical, you know, discussion that it is not. Uh, far be it from me to question the experts on that. If it provides an alternative and it's used responsibly, then um, you know, that's certainly something we'll support. We're going to support as many alternatives as possible uh, to opioid painkillers. Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro joined us for a recent discussion of his office's work to stem the opioid addiction problem in our state. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Each year in America, police arrest one million juveniles, creating a system for processing that should encourage the opportunity for behavior correction and hopefully a small blemish for these youths. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. With juveniles coming out of confinement with lapses in education and a limited employment future. Kara Drainen, a professor of law at Catholic University, is an expert on juvenile justice. She spoke to us about her new book, The War on Kids, How American Juvenile Justice Lost Its Way. This is a topic that in northeastern Pennsylvania we've been interested in for so many years because we had one of the largest juvenile justice scandals in history right here where we live, the Kids for Cash case. You also have another claim to fame. Pennsylvania has the highest juvenile life without parole population in the nation. So I agree with you. Pennsylvania has its work cut out for it. Absolutely. And as you uh, mentioned in in the book, this started to um, just blossom and grow based upon events that have happened in our history where zero zero tolerance became a thing with kids and there was certainly an overcorrection 
for certain individuals who, you know, brought stuff to school and whatnot in the aftermath of Columbine, right? Yeah, that's right. The war on kids is really a subplot to the story of mass incarceration in America. Um, Today, we have more than 2 million adults and kids behind bars in this country. We lead the world in our rate of incarceration. And the practices that we engage in regarding kids, for example, charging them as adults, exposing them to mandatory minimums, holding them in solitary, um, and so forth, those were a function of late 20th century tough-on-crime politics. And we know now that they've been an enormous waste of human potential and taxpayer money. And again, that that is such a sad situation, Kara. I mean, when I think about the way that it happened to uh, young people who live where we live, you talk about mandatory minimums. In, In many cases here in our state of Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth is reticent to give mandatory minimums to adults for certain crimes. And with kids, it just seems to me that we use a system um, that's ridiculous for some of them. Yeah, and the good news, though, is that the science we have today and the Supreme Court in its case law recently has adopted that as science. And that science tells us that even kids who commit serious crimes are more amenable to rehabilitation than their adult counterparts. Um, and so state sentencing practices really need to reflect that and, and give kids an opportunity to age out of criminal behavior. Boy, that's such a great point. And also, we, we know from some of the cases that we saw here, Kara, and by the way, it's, it's very difficult for the media to cover juvenile courts because they're just not allowed in them, and that was an obstacle here where we live. But we know <laughs> that uh, kids, when uh, given a chance to have some sort of alternative sentencing or a different kind of punishment instead of sitting in a facility with where there are scoundrels and they learn about being bad, they have the potential to actually turn it around by working with the mentors and role models, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, too many kids enter some kind of correctional facility already traumatized. And then as you point out, um, incarceration just makes them better at criminal behavior, right? The skills you need to survive a correctional facility are the exact opposite of what you need to be a productive member of society. Um, so, you know, you look at a state like Missouri, and they have a much better model where they keep kids, when they have to be in a correctional facility, they keep them in smaller places with folks who are trained in therapy versus just correctional officers. And, in, and they're not sitting in a cell, as you said. They're, they're getting education, uh, vocational training, and rehab. Um, and, and Missouri's doing that at a lower cost and with far more efficacy than other states. Yeah, because when when kids are are young, and uh, we've had a a couple people uh, from the Juvenile Law Center on our show out of Philadelphia, they're great. Sure. And they talk about um, how kids are not many adults, and that sometimes is lost on us because sometimes kids do commit absolutely horrific crimes okay we don't we don't want to lose sight of that but that's not all of them it's not every single one of them and we saw through this process Kara kids who came out of lengthy confinements and they literally lost all those years I guess when the brain is is forming and being wired properly yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, in, in putting my book together, I did a lot of research and interviews with individuals who have served lengthy prison terms, who've come of age in prison. 
And it's not surprising that a person who spent 30 years in prison is not the same person they were as an adolescent. You know, um, that science I was speaking of earlier, it tells us that that frontal lobe isn't developed until the mid-20s. And so I can speak to this as a mother myself. We, we know that kids are impulsive and they don't consider long-term consequences. And they're more subject to peer pressure than, than adults. Um, and that makes them less culpable, but more importantly, more likely to rehabilitate. That's the good news. Yeah, and I, I also don't want to get away from the the thought that some of the things that people do, even when they're young, are very, very evil. And there needs to be some sort of punishment for that. Um, how Have you seen any success in working with individuals who maybe um, kill or do something horrible when they're young, that there is some sort of road to redemption for them? Because we look at some of those crimes and people, they do say, and you've heard it, lock them up and throw away the key. Right. I mean, that's, you know, the lock them up, throw them away the key idea, I think, is is a now debunked one, right? We know better based on science, but you're absolutely right. There are individuals across the country serving life without parole or its equivalent um, for juvenile offenses that were very serious. I will say when you look at who those people are, for example, take Michigan. Michigan has the second highest, after Pennsylvania, second highest juvenile life without parole population. And as prosecutors begin to look at those cases and give them a second look in the wake of the Supreme Court's decisions, 85% of those individuals are at the lowest level of security clearance, uh, security level that they can be at. So even the Department of Corrections is realizing those people have matured and changed during their period of incarceration. So I think the thing we need to focus on is periodic review for children, even when they commit serious crime. And it seems that you have evidence to suggest that there there is hope. And, you know, when you look at somebody who is young, I don't know, 14 or 15, and you think, wow, a life in prison for that individual, it's such a tough thing to wrap your mind around because you mentioned you do have children and we, you know, we look at kids that are 14 and 15 and we realize that uh, holding them forever, I guess, would be, you know, the, the way in some cases. But these reviews, have, have you been able to talk to anybody who was incarcerated at a young age and was given the chance to be paroled, put on probation, whatever, and is now a different individual and is a, a success story outside of incarceration, I guess is my question. I have, yeah. In fact, I have a chapter in the book where I um, profile three individuals whose lives have been affected by the recent Supreme Court decisions in this space. And, um, you know, I think the, those folks can reintegrate um, and can reenter society. It's especially helpful if they have a supportive family um, to come home to and a network. But as with all people who have served time, um, folks who, who come out of prison have challenges upon reentry. You know, they, they um, have missed out on things like the development of technology and the evolution of the job market. So there are success stories. We need to do more to make sure that when folks have, have served their time, have paid the price for their crime, that we permit them to, to reenter society and be productive. You also have some statistics in uh, your your book here about the number of individuals who are confined uh, on any given day. 54,000 children either in uh, juvenile detention or correctional 
facilities. And when you think about it, that's a, a pretty tall amount. Have you found, Kara, uh, in your research, I know here we do have some tremendous programs based upon what happened in our court system. If not for that, I don't know if there could have been that, that mindset. But are you seeing um, communities that are saying, you know what, we're going to change the the system entirely. I mean, we have diversion programs for adults that get in trouble. There's now drug court and veterans court and so on and so forth. So are you seeing more of a move to that model, which not only keeps people out of those facilities, but allows them the opportunity to still work and stay in their homes in these situations? Yeah, there are some models, as I mentioned, for example, Missouri, um, some of the red states in the South in particular, because of budgetary issues, have, have started to take a look at juvenile diversion issues. Um, I, I think another reason jurisdictions are starting to look at this is because even as, as um, youth detention has declined, you mentioned the 54,000 figure, that's a, a significant drop from, say, a decade ago. But minority youth are not benefiting from that downward trend. So if you look across the nation, black youth, for example, are five times more likely than white youth to be detained. Um, and so I think there are some some racial and economic disparity issues that we also need to focus on. Are you noticing any schools that are starting to dial down on the, the, no, the, the zero tolerance policies that were uh, accepted after the Columbine incident? Uh, unfortunately, we're not seeing a winding down of police presence in schools. And again, going back to the point of racial disparity and economic disparity, um, schools in poor minority neighborhoods experience much heavier policing and are more likely to have zero tolerance policies. Um, so that 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 just um, you know raises the the stakes for kids in those communities, and it's just one more likely way in which they end up in the criminal justice system. All right, but uh, overall, are you? I, the, I'd like to leave on a, a positive note, though. Are you mm-hmm. see, Are you seeing um, some some progress in unexpected places, even from unexpected people who took the hard line? Because you know it is election season, and across the country right now, you see a bunch of people running for I don't know district attorney or, or judge in their community who tough on crime, tough on crime, tough on crime. Are you seeing any kind of paradigm shift even within, uh, you know, prosecutors or judges who are are saying, you know what, Uh, we were wrong? Yes, absolutely. Despite the fact that the president and a number of individuals close to him are um, resurrecting the tough on crime rhetoric, there is wide bipartisan support for smart on crime reform. Um, People recognize across the political spectrum that all detention, but especially youth detention, is a waste of human potential and at $150,000 a year, a massive waste of taxpayer resources. So yes, I think we are seeing a turn toward um, smart criminal justice reform. Okay, and I'm glad to hear you use that kind of phraseology 
um, smart on crime because I think that's good. And I hope in the future that uh, there are strides made that are that are fair, Kara, but get the job done. And I don't want to let anybody off the hook here. There are people certainly who deserve what they get because they've done something bad. But it's not some of the, the petty stuff that we've seen in the past where people went away and came out worse. So I'm glad that uh, you wrote the book. And I, I can't wait to read it, Kara, because like I said, where we live, this was a huge part of our landscape for, I don't know, the last uh, almost decade or so. So thanks for Yeah, doing, absolutely. So thanks for Well, thank you so much for having me, too. That's Kara Drainin, author of the new book, The War on Kids, How American Juvenile Justice Lost Its Way. You are listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.